following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Today's sermon passage comes from John 11, 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, will he recover? Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. How y'all doing? Yeah, man. Amen. Good, good. Good to see you guys. Good to see you guys. Thank y'all for joining us this morning. This, uh, this topic or this sermon text is a complex one. Um, I know you've probably heard me say that a couple of times in, in, in the last couple of weeks, but really, uh, for whatever reason, man, John in, this, in this, this ninth chapter, 10th chapter, 11th chapter, really challenges us in a lot of different ways. And he, and he, he causes us to kind of stare down into the mystery of God. We get a chance to see some things about God um, that, that kind of rock us a little bit. He doesn't, he doesn't move in, in, the, in the direction that we would consider normative. He doesn't move in the direction that we would consider uh, humanly logical or humanly reasonable. He does some things in the last couple of chapters that kind of shake us a little bit in terms of what we are to expect from him. And this is no different. This is a chapter in which God shakes us in terms of what we are to expect from him. We see a lot of complexity about God's view of the world and about God's view of his eternal work uh, in, the life, in the life of the believer, in the life of the world, in this text, all right? And so you're going to learn some things about God, and then you're going to walk away wondering some things about God, because there's some things that we won't be able to answer this morning for you as we walk through this text, but we're going to do our best to answer what we can, what he has revealed to us by, by his word, all right? So this is a text about resurrection, and it's, it, and it's really, really beautiful that we would come to a text about resurrection on the eve of our Sunday's celebration of Jesus' resurrection. It just, it just so happened to fall that way on the calendar, so to speak, John chapter 11. And I'm really, really excited, and that's why we're calling it an Easter prelude, because it's a, res it's a, it's, it's a resurrection before the resurrection. 
This is the resurrection of Lazarus. This is the resurrection that kind of that lingers in front of the resurrection to come, all right? And we're going to talk about that resurrection. We're going to talk about Jesus' resurrection. We're going to even talk about our resurrection by the time we're finished this morning. But I want to start by just reading uh, for, for you verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. This is a story about people. This is a story about people, people that Jesus deeply, deeply deeply loves from all indications of reading through this text. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus loves these people that we're about to look, in, look into their lives. We first see these two women in another story with Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 and, uh, through 42. Maybe you've heard this story. Maybe you've read this story. Maybe you've been taught this story in Sunday school growing up. But in chapter 10 of Luke, it reads, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered the village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. It's funny because you see the same personalities of these two coming out in this passage as well. Martha seems to be the outspoken one, the forward one, the one that's initiating and taking action. Mary seems to be the one that's just kind of, you know, hanging back and just taking things as they come. And you see that in this, in this, in this uh, text in John chapter 11 as well. But apparently the relationship deepens from Luke chapter 10 with this family because by the time we find them in John's gospel, they are considered in a deep, loving friendship with Jesus. And it is that friendship that in part drives Jesus' response to the news that he receives from them. He receives news from these two that the one that he loves is ill. The one that he loves is ill. It's obvious that these sisters have great confidence in Jesus' ability to help their brother in his illness because they sin for him, and it is quite obvious that Jesus cares for this family because he makes the decision to go without hesitation. Despite the current situation that he finds himself up against, if he returns, I need you to understand that because there is a situation ongoing. If you recall last week, at the end of John chapter 10, Jesus said that he was not only kind of like the Father or not only did he have a desire that he wanted to be like the Father, but he said that he and the Father are one in John chapter 10. So he said he laid claim to being the Son of God and he laid claim to being the Savior of the world and he laid claim to being one with God the Father in John chapter 10. All those things led to fury coming from the group, fury coming from the crowd that was listening. So much so that they picked up rocks ready to stone him and then he gave them, some, uh, he gave them a kind of okey-doke and started talking about the Son of Man and the Son of God rather. And we talked about that language uh, being found in the Psalms and you can go back and listen to the sermon or watch the sermon because we got video now and you can go back and listen to that and see that unpacked. But, but nevertheless, they say, okay, well, we're going to put our stones down, but we're still going to arrest him. And when they decide and make the decision to arrest him, Jesus all of a sudden as he normally does, scoots out from underneath them, and then he decides to retreat 
over across the Jordan to where John the Baptist used to reside. All right? So now we have Mary and Martha. Martha in particular. Mary hasn't came on the scene yet. But Martha is asking Jesus to come back because the one that you love is ill. Verse 7 says, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Let's go back. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? The disciples highlight what they feel Jesus must have forgotten, right? Jesus, I I don't know if you was there the other day at the Feast of Dedication, um, but there were some people that weren't excited about you when you left. And so now you're talking about going back, and, and, and they probably will be ready to see you dead if you do. But remember, he's going back for the one that he loves. He's going back for the one that he loves. Do you, do you hear that? Jesus' point While it sounds confusing, it's actually pretty clear. He says in verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. The point is, is that I'm here to do a job. And that job will be done until I'm no longer in the position to do it. Until it's complete, in other words. I'm going to do the job that I've been sent here to do. But it's also a message not only about Jesus, but it's also a message to the disciples. And you are here with me. And so while I'm here and while there is light, while I am here and he brings that light, there is work to be done. There's places to go. And we're going to continue to fulfill the mission until the mission is complete. Or we're going to continue to work the mission until the mission is fulfilled and complete. Does it make sense? In other words, Jesus' love for Lazarus and his love for his sisters compels him to go, but his commission or his commitment to his mission compels him just as much. And you hear the passion for his mission in verse 4. It says this, listen. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus' passion for the glory of his Father, and in this particular case, the Father is being glorified through the glory of the Son when he performs this mighty work. So his passion for his Father's glory, his zeal to see his father shine, and God's, God the Father's zeal to see his son shine is what, is what drives him to go. Does that make sense? He loves Lazarus, don't get me wrong, but it's the zeal for the glory of God that is pushing him just as much and more so. God is in the business of displaying his glory. And all his mighty works and all his mighty acts are pointing towards that singular truth, this singular truth, that God is mighty, awesome, worthy of all praise, all glory, and all honor. And all of his activity points towards that. He does what he does to draw us to that truth. But something strange happens between Jesus receiving the word about Lazarus 
and Jesus and the disciples actually leaving their wilderness location to actually go and visit Lazarus. Something in between there happens that's really, really odd. And it's this. He waits. He says, I've got I to gotta fulfill the mission of God, so I'm going. I've got to fulfill the mission of my Father to bring glory to my Father and bring glory to my Father through glorifying myself and my acts. So I'm going, and i got to go because I love Lazarus. So I'm going, and i got to go because I love Mary and I love Martha. So I'm going. But before he goes, he waits. In fact, he waits long enough for Lazarus to die. That is where the complexity comes in. Verse 10 says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. That's good that he's asleep. He needs sleep. He's sick. That's what the disciples are thinking. And Jesus says, Verse 13, now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Lazarus has died. Jesus waits two days. He loves this family. He desires the glory of God to uh, to shine brightly, and yet he waits two days. And in those two days, Looks like he misses his opportunity. Lazarus dies. We're not not sure if he gets word of this or he just knows it. Because there is no indicator that anybody tells him that he dies. He just says, hey, now it's time to go. We, you know, we, we need to restore our brother back. He's fallen asleep. If in if in reading that text, you were driven to doubt Jesus' love for this brother in any way then redirect your attention to verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, listen, listen to this. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Notice the order. The order is so odd that, that, that certain translations don't know how to deal with it, and so they translate it differently. For example, the earlier versions of the NIV and the earlier versions of the New Living Translation says it in this way in verse verse 5 and 6. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Did you see the the catch? They threw a word in there, the word although. In other words, he loved them, but uh, although he loved them, he decided to stay. But that's not the way to work. That's not the way the translation works. That's not the way the Greek is read. That's not the way modern translations render it. The modern translations render it, I'm saying it again, so went, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, Lazarus, verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So in other words, the text isn't saying that he was waiting despite the fact that he loves the family. The text is saying that he was waiting literally because he loved the family. That's getting weird, isn't it? How is it loving? You asking yourself that right now? How 
is it loving to wait while a family watches their loved one die? To wait while a family languishes in deep sorrow and, and, and mourning over the loss of their brother. To wait while they bury him. Wouldn't love ensure that they don't have to go through any of that? How is this loving? So while God won't give us the full range of his wisdom in suffering and, and everything that he's doing, because we talk about it all the time, he's doing a billion things with a billion people through your, your instances of suffering. So while he won't tell us everything he's doing, he does offer us a glimpse into what he's doing in verses 11 through 16. There we see motivation for his waiting. First of all, the disciples are completely oblivious to what's going on. You know, and that, this, is nothing, this is nothing odd, right? I mean, if you, if you and I were hanging out with Jesus, we'd all be clueless too. We wouldn't know what was going on. And so in verse 11, this is what he says. He says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So the disciples are completely clueless. They don't know what's going on. Thomas is clueless, but he's down for whatever. He says in verse 16, so Thomas called the twins, said to the fellow, his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So Thomas is like, I don't really know what's going on. All I know that when we get to Judea, he's going to get killed. So y'all going to ride with him or not, right? Are y'all down? I mean, because I'm down, right? This is my boy. I'm not going to let him die alone. Of course, we know they let him die alone, but right now, I'm not going to let him die alone. You know, you talk big until you get to the moment, right? It's like two basketball players in a, in a fight on the court. They just always happen to work around each other, you know, and work around all their teammates, and they never get a chance to throw a real punch. And this is Thomas. He's down as long as they're, like, not in Judea. When they get in Judea, then maybe he's not going to be as down. But he says, hey, let's go with Jesus because he's about to die, so let's go so that we can die with him. He has no idea what's going on. None of the disciples have any idea what's going on. So they all have some form of misunderstanding, but not just misunderstanding, folks. Unbelief. Because Jesus senses it and says this in verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. There's your motivation. There's one motivation. So that you may believe. Not just the disciples' belief even, but even the sisters' belief. For example, you look at Martha and her story. Look at verse 17. It says in verse 17, talking about Martha, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha doesn't get it, does she? 
First of all, she says, if you was here, he wouldn't have died. That's the first thing she messes up. Jesus says, your brother's going to live again. Second thing she messes up is is by saying, oh, yeah, he's going to live again in the resurrection. And so in two instances, Martha says, you can't do it. You can't do it. So it's not just the disciples who lack faith and lack belief, but it's Martha who lacks faith and belief. Mary, in verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you, speaking of Jesus. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's another instance of unbelief. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Don't be too hard on Mary and Martha. We do it all the time. Right? When sickness hits our body. God, if you was here, I'd be healed. You must not be here. Tragedy hits our home. God, you must not be around because if you were here, this would not have happened to my family. When bills are due, God, where are you? Must not be here. When we continue to wrestle and fight with our sin and temptation continues to chase us, even though we begged and pleaded with God that those temptations would be removed. God, is your spirit really real? Because if he was really real, I wouldn't be battling with this. Mary and Martha aren't the only people that think that God comes a little late. We all tend to sense that at times in our lives that God comes a little later than he ought. The reality is is that God is, (laughs) dare I say it, on time. God is on time. Jesus is on time. Remember, he could have just spoken a word from where he stood in the wilderness area over on the cross on the other side of the Jordan. He did that. Remember Matthew 8, the centurion has a servant that is suffering from paralysis. He comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I need you to heal my servant. Jesus says, where is your servant? Let's go see him. He says, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. But if you just say the word, I'm a man of authority. I know that if you just say the word, because you have authority, my servant will be healed. Jesus says the word, he's healed. And the Bible says in that moment, he was healed. So notice something. Jesus could have said, Lazarus is healed, and he didn't. Could have said it the moment he heard it. Could have said it the day after. Could have said it two days after. He doesn't say it any of those days. He waits and waits. Lazarus is dead. See, this isn't about what he can heal and what he won't heal. 
This is about, this isn't even about whether he does love or doesn't love. Because we know that he can heal and we know that he loves. So it isn't about either one. He can heal immediately and he loves completely. But he doesn't heal because his eternal glory and his eternal, and our eternal good rather, warrants something better than, listen to me, than immediate healing. His eternal glory and our eternal good warrants something better than your bill to be paid immediately, than your suffering to end immediately, than your friend to be, than your friend to be brought back from the dead. Sometimes his eternal glory and your eternal good warrants something better. I told you we were going to be messing with the mystery of God this morning. And so you are saying as I say that, dude, I don't understand that. But let me ask you something. When you take a master painter and you put him in a room and you give him a canvas and you give him some paint to get to working, when he starts working the first five minutes, are you like, dude, that's a terrible portrait you just drew? He got a couple of strokes over here, a couple of strokes over there. Are you saying, dude, can you really draw? Can you really paint? I'm not sure. Or do you give that man some time? And you let him work all of his mastery in that canvas. And you let him complete the picture. And when he completes the picture, you realize that there were some strokes you would have never taken because you don't know how to paint. That there were some lines you would have never drawn because you're not an artist. And you realize, man, that is phenomenal that you saw that picture from that blank canvas. And what I'm telling you is that that's God to the infinite degree. That he is taking strokes that you would never take. He's drawing and crafting a portrait that you would have never, ever thought of in your wildest dreams. You wouldn't allow somebody to get sick. You wouldn't allow someone to to not see that healing on this side of the li- on this side of life. You wouldn't allow people to die. You wouldn't allow any of this. But family, you are not the master painter. If you're doing good, you'll be here for seventy years. Our God knows no end to his existence. He's been here and will forever forever be. You are not the master painter. He is. He wants the glory that comes when they embrace him in total belief. That's what, he's, that's what he's doing. He's working this out so that they will come to embrace him with complete and total belief. But there are a million reasons why he would do a similar thing in your life. A million reasons why he's doing what he's doing in your life. It's not that you don't pray for healing. It's not that you don't pray for the situation to get better. It's not that you don't pray for your struggle and sin and temptation and and to have that temptation removed from you. It's not that you don't pray for all of these things. It's just that you do not lose hope when the answer doesn't come the way that you think it should. Because you are praying to the master painter. You are praying to the master artist. And so you are submitting yourself to his skill to his vision, not your own. Embrace this reality 
that sometimes God's love for you will allow a situation to get worse before it gets better. That out of his love for you, a situation may get worse before it gets better. Because he loves you, a situation may get worse before it gets better. Let's look at verse 33. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also keep this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? We see, we see this complexity of God's glory and man's suffering at work here. The works of Christ are shaped by God's compassion for us. He does things because he has compassion for us. This passage gives us several moments. If you just, the passage that we just read gives us several moments where we hear about Jesus being deeply moved and greatly troubled for the family that is impacted most by what seems to be a great tragedy. Deeply moved, greatly troubled. What does it mean? What does deeply moved mean? It actually doesn't mean empathy. It doesn't mean compassion or, or it doesn't mean um, grieved, so to speak, as much as it means angered. He's angry as he watches this moment, as he watches this transpire, as he looks into the eyes of these sisters and he sees them weeping. He's actually angry. You say, how is this working? I don't understand how God can be more than capable of healing and yet still be angry at the fact that the man is dead. It seems that, you know, many theologians surmise that it's not simply that he's aggravated or angered at the people because they have professional wailers that probably have gathered to wail and loudly wail. And, and, and some people say, well, maybe he's irritated at them because he knows he's about to heal them. But it's not that. He says it several times. He weeps with the sisters. He's deeply grieved and deeply troubled. What seems to be the case is that Jesus is grieved and troubled by the complexity of sin and death in this world, even as he holds the authority to free us from it. Again, listen to me. We're talking about the complexity of God. And so God can, God can pursue his glory with great joy and still have enough, have enough width within his, within his power, within his divine nature, to hold your tears and to cry with you. You understand this? This is the God that we're speaking of, a, a divine God. The Bible says that he's holy, that he's not like you, that he's not like me. He doesn't have to hold one emotion at a time. Doesn't have to be happy, and if he's happy, he can't be sad. Doesn't have to be sad, and if he's sad, he can't be happy. That he can literally weep about the sin and the death of the world all the, all the while loving the pursuit of his glory and the fact that he's working all of these things, even the brokenness that's in this world for his good. 
Remember Jesus' words at the very beginning of this story. He said that the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So even after Lazarus' death, or even before Lazarus' death, rather, Jesus was always working something. That all of this was for a reason. That this man's suffering, this man's pain, this man's death, this, man, this man's family's sorrows, this, their tears, their, their mourning was all a part of God's ultimate plan to bring glory to the Son. And so by the time we get to the point of this man's resurrection, Martha said, oh, I don't know about this, Jesus, maybe we can see him when we get on the other side. And Jesus is like, no, what did I tell you? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God today. That's what it was all about. That's what the four days was about. That's what the stench that's coming from this man's tomb is about. That's what the decomposition of this man's body is about. This man's, this man's body is literally decomposing. He's about to call him out. Not call him out after a few hours. He's about to call this man out after he has decomposed. In other words, he is about to recreate this man. And yet he weeps. He weeps even with the knowledge of what he's about to do. His glory isn't on display without regard for your pain. Yes, he's working things out for his glory. But he doesn't smile at your pain, even though he knows what he's doing is bringing about an eternal good for you. He still weeps with you. The complexity of God leaves room for both. So they took away the stone, verse 41, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, said to them, unbind him and let him go. He calls him out the same way he told us that he would in John chapter 5. He said that he would call the dead, that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. He said in verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So this is the prelude of the great resurrection, that when he calls out the dead, they respond. Now, this is how it's held in tension. We're wrapping up now. This is how it's all held in tension. How is it that God can have this complexity at work where he is, where he is allowing death and allowing suffering and allowing sorrow and allowing tears and allowing weeping? How is it that he can do that, not just for Mary, not just for Martha, not even just for Lazarus, but how is it that he is doing that for the rest of the world? And the answer is that he's doing it for the rest of the world, or he's, do, he's holding it in tension the same way that he held this intention. And this is what I mean. The reason that he could wait four days, this man was dead for four days, and the reason that he can wait even with tears in his eyes is because he knew the resurrection was coming. 
be tracking. And that the resurrection would bring about a greater glory that would cause us to look back at the suffering of Lazarus and rejoice even greater than had he not suffered without it or had he not had that suffering. Does that make sense? God the Father, the Bible says that it pleased him to crush the son. How is it that God could take pleasure in the destroying of his son on the cross, in the mocking, in the torturing, in the whipping, in the pain, in the suffering that he experienced on the cross on Good Friday? How is it that God can take pleasure? Because he knows that the resurrection is coming on Sunday. And so because the resurrection is coming, he knows that in light of the resurrection, all these things will be seen in a greater light, in a greater glory, with a greater joy. How can God take pleasure in your suffering? How can he say, I know know it's tough, daughter. I know it's tough, brother. I know it's tough, son, rather. I know it's tough. I know it's tough but I'm going to let you go through it. How can he do that? How can he let you go through the struggle? How can he let you go through the pain? How can he let us live in a world where we're literally chomping at each other? Racism's running rampant. Sexism's running rampant. How How can he allow this? Children are born with infirmities. How can he allow this? because he is living or he is allowing it because there is a resurrection coming for you. And in light of the resurrection that comes, you will look back on it just like Jesus the Christ looks back on his own cross, just like Lazarus looks back on his own grave. You will look back on the suffering of this life and have a greater joy and have a greater praise for the God that delivered you, that saved you, that set you free, and that made you alive. The complexity of God is held together through the resurrecting acts that he is performing in this universe. If God let it all just sink and there was no climax, no joy at the end, then we all could say, what kind of God is this that would do something crazy like this? But it's because God is moving to a greater glory, and he's moving all of us to experience and see that greater glory in him, that we're going to look back on this in eternity and say, man, God is spectacular. So take courage. Take heart. Take heart. Know that your suffering is not in vain. The tears that you, the tears that you weep are not empty. Or the tears that you shed, they aren't empty. That God is doing something. And you might not see it completely now, but you will one day see it, and it will be marvelous, not just in your eyes, but it will be marvelous in all of our eyes. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you so much for your goodness and your grace, your mercy, and your loving kindness. Father, you declared in 
John chapter 11, that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Father, it's because you are the resurrection. It's because everything is leading to the resurrection, whether it be Lazarus' resurrection, whether it be your own son's resurrection, whether it be our resurrection, it's because the resurrection, because Jesus is the resurrection that all the, the complexity and the confusion of life can find a solid ground to rest on. Father, we pray that if there be any in this room that do not believe in you, we pray that they would come to faith in you because in coming to faith in you, they too take part in the resurrection. And in coming, in, coming to faith in you, the suffering of this world will not defeat or conquer or overtake them, but it will only add to the beautiful story. It will only add to the beautiful portrait that you are painting. We thank you that you are the resurrection. We thank you that you are the life. And we thank you that all those who would cling to you and look to you will find the resurrection that you are. These things we ask in you and we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.